Welcome to Own the Microphone. Join me, Bridget McGowan, an award-winning international professional speaker and owner of the independent publishing company, BMAC Talks Press. Hello, everybody. Welcome to today's episode of Own the Microphone. I am Bridget McGowan, and today I am joined by Rob Reutblatt. Bob, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. It's nice to be had. Okay. Everybody, you can tell where this episode will go. Bob, question for you. And I know you have an answer or an opinion. Do you ever get nervous before a presentation? So the answer you probably want me to give or your audience wants to hear is, oh, no, I never get nervous. But the truth is I get nervous before every presentation. I've been a professional speaker for almost 40 years. And just before I start, I ask myself, why am I doing this? Why am I putting myself through this? The first 30 seconds are the hardest part. And then the fun begins and, and everything's fine. Almost 40 years and you still get nervous. What causes that? What do you think is going on there? You know, I'm human. I don't like to be judged. I don't want people to think that I don't know what I'm talking about or that I'm going to fumble my words or I'm going to look stupid, maybe have some spinach left in my teeth. Anything's possible. Oh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm human, I think, last time I checked. But I'm just, I'm actually a big introvert, just like you, Bridget. As you say, I'm an introvert. I don't like meeting people. Once I know somebody, I'll talk to them. But, you know, all these people in the room, I've never met them before, and I'm nervous, and I, it all goes through my head, and it still goes through my head, yet I get up and go do it anyway. How do you get up there and just go through it? How do you rock it out nearly four decades here? You're, and I, same here. Well, I haven't been doing professional speaking for nearly four decades, but for more than 20 years, I still get those jitters beforehand. So how do you push past it? How do you get up there and just do the job? It's a great question. For me, it's because I know that I have something of value to deliver to the audience. They invited me for a reason. I have some experience. I have some knowledge. I have funny stories. Whatever it is, I have some value to deliver. And the value I'm delivering is more powerful than my own fears. The way I get around it is the first 30 seconds are the most important. So I know my first 30 seconds cold. I almost always open with a story. If you would wake me up in the middle of the night and say, you know, uh, Bob, you're on. I would start rattling off my opening story before I even realized that I'm still in bed. You know, it's dark out, whatever it happens to be. Um, and then, you know, maybe I wonder what you're doing in my bedroom in the middle of the night asking me <laughs> that I'm ready to go. But, you know, what's the old saying about last night I shot an elephant in my underwear? What is doing in my underwear? I have no idea. Boom, boom. Never snare drum when you need one. So that's really how, how I get around it. I, I know my topics cold. I have no problem with, uh, let's turn off the PowerPoint if I'm having it anyway. Everything goes dead. I can still carry on. I can still answer questions. I can still deliver my material. So I'm not worried that I'm going to forget what I'm going to say. It's more of, I don't want to look dumb. So that's those 30, 
first 30 seconds to me are critical. If I can start my story, uh, then I'm good because now I'm focused on the audience. I'm looking into people's eyes uh, and, and we're having a conversation. We'll get into that in a minute. We're having a conversation and then the jitters kind of go to the back of my mind and, and eventually they go away. And of course, by the time I'm done, whether it's 30 minutes later, 90 minutes later, three hours later, I'm exhausted because I like to give all the energy to people in the room. And by burning off the energy to the room, uh, you know, I burn up my own anxiety along with it. It's talk, to us more, talk to us more about having a conversation. Okay. I believe that when we do a presentation, if we want to be impactful, we're really having a conversation with the audience. I may be doing most of the talking, but the conversation is I say something, the audience thinks about it, reacts to it, responds to it, maybe has a questioning look. I say something else, they, they chew on that for a while. So we're having a back and forth, but most of the time or part of the time, I'm the one doing the talking. Now, in the old days, if, if I was booked for a keynote, I would stand up and spew for 90 minutes, thank you very much, and run off the stage. But I don't think audiences want that anymore. Audience don't want to be passive listeners. They want to be active participants. So really, keynotes these days are, let me present a chunk of information and do a little Q&A, or as I like to say, Q&O, questions and opinions. I don't have all the answers, but I do have lots of opinions, and I'm certainly willing to share them. So I'm going to do a piece, uh, take questions from the audience, talk about that, do a deeper dive as people want to on that sub subject, that area, then move on to the next chunk, deliver that, have another Q&A, Q&O with the audience. So I may still be on stage for the same, let's say it's a 60-minute um, keynote, but I'm not talking nonstop for the 60 minutes. It's 10 minutes, 15 minutes, maybe 20 minute chunk. Let's do a part of the Q&A instead of waiting till the end. And by then people have forgotten the most important questions anyway. I want to talk more about the Q&A or Q&O piece and the point that you just brought up about not waiting until the end. I like taking questions throughout the presentation as well, because I feel like if someone has this query and it pops up maybe at the 12 minute mark, the 20 minute mark of your presentation, a lot of people will get stuck on that one point, that question, and it is hard to push past that and hear anything that the presenter is, is offering. And so I like to take those questions in real time, partially for selfish reasons too, because then I'm able to get the question in context. If I wait until the end of a three-hour workshop, to answer a question that was formulated in someone's mind the first hour of the workshop, I'm, I'm thinking, what, wait, what in the world was I addressing at that moment that could have led to that question that can help me answer the question? So what advice do you have for people where they feel like they might get sidetracked or off course if they take questions throughout the presentation? Because frankly, as you can tell, I think there are far more benefits to taking the questions throughout as opposed to waiting to the end. So what do you say to people who have some trepidation around taking the questions throughout? Well, first of all, Bridget, I think what you just said was brilliant. I completely agree with you. Think about if you've ever been on a, a tour, a boat tour or a museum tour. And if you ask the tour guide a question, they get stuck. Maybe they'll answer the question. Then they have to go back to the beginning of their, of their talk because they can't remember where they left off. They have memorized what they're going to say, but they don't necessarily know their topic. 
to me, if you know your topic cold, it doesn't matter. Ask me a question, I'll answer it, then we'll, we'll carry on from there. Or maybe we won't carry on from there. Because if your question, if, if one audience member is asking the question, and let's say there's 100 people in the room, 10 people are thinking that same thing, but only one person maybe is speaking up. The other night, people going, wow, I wish I knew the answer. And maybe that will take the talk in a completely different direction. Again, the audience wants to be co-creators of the presentation. So let's go in the direction, as long as it's on topic, or maybe one of my favorite alternative subjects, but as long as it's on topic, the audience is getting value, not just dwelling on one person, but there's broad appeal. If, if that means we go in that direction, let's go in that direction. But that only happens if you know your topic cold. Mm. Now, there are, there are some speakers who go, oh, I can talk on anything. I'll listen to a podcast or two and on the way over and I can spew. Well, yes, you can spew, but you can't deliver real value. And those are two different things. Let's be very clear. <laughs> As a let, me take a little side, let me take a little side trip real fast. I was giving a talk to a group of CEOs down in New Orleans. I think there were 15 CEOs in the room and I was supposed to do a three-hour workshop. Just before I started, the, the head of the group pulled me aside and said, look around the room. Okay, great. You know, CEOs, I talk to CEOs all the time. He said, in the three hours of your presentation, their salary is $100,000. Don't waste their time. And while it took me aback immediately, I thought, you know, you're absolutely right. The value is not what I'm getting paid. The value is what they're giving up the opportunity cost while they're listening to me, I better deliver value at least the same amount, preferably more than that. So I will only take jobs, I only take gigs as a professional where I believe I can deliver real value. Time is your listener's greatest commodity. I'm telling you, it's that one thing we cannot get back. We cannot create more of, no matter how much time we spend in labs, uh, it's just not going to happen. As a serial entrepreneur and innovator, Bob Royblatt has started 12 companies from a wireless internet company to a software training company to several medical imaging centers with annual billings exceeding $45 million. When he is not speaking for companies such as Bayer, Lear, or Ogilvy and Mather, you can find him at the top or bottom of the ocean as a competitive sailor and recreational scuba diver. While Bob hesitates to call himself an expert in innovation because an X is a has-been and a spurt is a little bit more than a drip, he does believe innovation is about change and growth. What do you typically speak on in your presentations? Just curious. My major topic is innovation. How can we be more innovative, actually come up with product services processes that actually deliver value? It's amazing how I talk about delivering value in my talk and my talks are meant to deliver value. Since I started so many companies, apparently people think I know something about entrepreneurship and leadership. So my second favorite topic is talking about leadership. And I have a slightly different intro uh, when I do talk about leadership. But if somebody wanted me to talk about uh, negotiation 
or nuclear fission or something, I would say, well, thank you very much. Let me refer to you to some other people that I know, because those aren't my topics. I don't know them cold. I can't deliver the value that is necessary uh, to compensate the people in the room. So it's got to be. No, go ahead. It's got to be. It's got to be in my wheelhouse or whatever cliche you want to use. It's got to be somewhere where I firmly believe I have something different to say than you could get, you know, reading an article or, or picking up the latest podcast. I have to have a unique perspective or I'm not delivering real value. What's the biggest aha moment you've delivered? Think about a presentation where there was something you told them, something you had them do, and the light bulbs were just going off like mad. What was it? Probably the biggest thing, using that example, is saying something that I didn't expect to be funny and people laugh hysterically at. It's like, well, that's not really meant to be funny, but if I'm going to get laughs, hey, when they're laughing, they're learning, I'm going to use that again next time. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, I believe I stole that from Seth Godin, but go ahead, steal it from him. He, he won't know. Yeah, um, yeah, I mean, that's how we do it. Yeah. <laughs> to me, I tell people all the time, I never give the same talk twice. And the reason for that is the people in the room are different. The questions they ask are different. The circumstances are different. So it may be the same topic. It may be the same general presentation. But if somebody asks a question that I've not heard that version or, or heard before, and it sets us off in a little bit different direction, but a valuable direction, hey, let's go with it. So the, the, the little sparks happen all the time. People say things like, oh, well, that's interesting. Let's talk about that. You know, what do you think? How can you, you uh, contribute to that? One of my favorite sayings is, you know, I get paid the same whether I talk or you talk. So why don't you fill us in on that? Because I'm going to get paid anyway. So, you know, come on up and, you know, share that with us. <laughs> but I always hold on to the microphone. <laughs> just in case <laughs> you never know right you never know i that's an interesting tactic i have never heard of that one before i kind of like it i'm kind of digging it <laughs> copyright 1995 you know whatever Get a little <laughs> disclaimer on it but so i have I no problem literally bringing people up out of the audience you know if it's big enough where there's a stage and microphones come on up come on up get your two minutes uh share that part of it because I'm not there to necessarily give a monologue. I'm there to deliver value. If I can deliver value through individual experiences of people in the room, hey, let's do it. Shortly, you'll be able to, well, not be able to, you will have the opportunity to ask me a question. But before we get into that, I heard you say, if the audience is big enough, you'll bring people up on the stage. Does size matter in terms of the size of the audience? Okay, be careful, yes. The size yes. of the audience matters, absolutely. The reason it matters is we're having a conversation and if there's 20 people in the room, it's easy to make eye contact with every person in the room. If there's a thousand people in the room, we're not making eye contact with individuals, but we're making eye contacts with zones of people. So you're looking in a particular direction and everyone thinks you're looking at them, but you're only looking at you know, one out of 20 or one out of, uh, out of 50 people. The other thing that is different is hand gestures and voice. Your hand gestures and your voice have to fill the room. So if we're having an intimate conversation, you and I are doing this on Zoom at the moment, we have one tone of voice, one way we, we, we inflect, uh, for example. But if we're on a big stage, well, 
I don't want to become speaker man, but I have to project more. Uh, usually have to slow down because, you know, the sounds have to get way back in the corners of the auditorium or something, where if we're having this intimate conversation, I can talk in different tones. I can slow down. Uh, also, with hand gestures, I'm not a big fan of, okay, I've got to choreograph all of my moves and look like, you know, Mr. Roboto. Um, but if we're on Zoom and we're doing video and my hands made a difference, I would have to keep them closer to my face because this is the frame we're in. You know, okay, we have three things we're going to talk about today. But if we're on a big stage, uh, all the moves have to be much larger so everyone in the audience can actually see if those, if those gestures, if those moves actually make a difference. Um, the, the other part is if we're saying something that we expect to be funny, uh, it takes a lot longer for the humor to start at the front and roll to the back, which means the same talk in a larger space takes longer because um, the last thing I want to do is interrupt people when they're doing one of four things. If the audience is laughing, crying, thinking, or applauding, I'm not interrupting. So if there's a thousand people and the laughter is rolling to the back of the room, I'm going to have to wait that much longer for the laughter to die down before I start up again. So th those are just small changes we have to make if we have a much larger, larger group. If we have you know, 20 people in a room, uh, forget about the riser, forget about the stage. I want to be on the floor so I can walk around uh, people. I prefer to have them in a horseshoe or something where I'm not turning my back to anybody. I can walk around the outside of them. Uh, but if there's 1,000 people, 500 people in an auditorium, uh, it's going to be up on a riser, up on a stage, which means my interaction is going to be just straight ahead or you know, maybe 15, 20 degrees to each side then I'm not going to be walking around through the whole audience. I love all of these strategies. You are spot on with every single one of them. Absolutely love it. What is probably one of the best strategies you've ever used or a technique that you incorporated into your speaking that just was a game changer, let's say 35 years ago or more? Oftentimes, we'll hear newer speakers say, how many of you, so you're talking to a group of people. When you say how many of you, that implies there's more than one. I try to never use words that imply there's more than one person I'm talking to. I'm having a conversation with one person a thousand times simultaneously. So instead of saying how many of you, I, I may ask how often have you? So that it seems like I'm asking just one person. So changing the dynamic from, hi, welcome to the whole world, everybody, to let's, let's have a conversation. You and I, let's just, you know, let's talk. Let's get together. What do you, you think? That is one of the slickest tips. I don't like the word tip because it seems to minimize the information. Secret. Strategies. It's a secret. Secrets I have ever heard I love it. And now I know why I never cared for those kinds of phrases. They're impersonal, mm -hmm. right? And although right. You're, you're sitting in this auditorium with hundreds or thousands of other people, you still want to feel like this is a one-on-one -on -one between you and the speaker. That is magic. So years and years and years ago, um, of course, now I just forgot his name. <laughs> <laughs> Famous broadcaster in Chicago. I did a tour with him 
and Timothy Leary. Uh, why can't I remember the, the gentleman's name? And I would tease him that, I mean, every night when I watch you on the news, you're not talking directly to me. <laughs> because that's what he would do. He'd look into the camera and, hi, how are you today? And you just know what he meant to say, how are you today, Bob? How are you today, Bridget? But he's really talking to, you know, Chicago, I don't know, maybe there's a, a million people that watched the back then, watched the nightly news, whatever. Now there's five people who watch the nightly, nightly news. So they can call you by name. So I went, you know, why, why would I do that? Do I want to feel as an audience member that I'm one of a thousand or one of, you know, whatever? No, I want to feel like you're talking to me, which means you're talking to me in my language. That's another secret, another strategy to make sure we're using words that the audience understands. We're not using acronyms and shortcuts and, and whatever's and, and cliches that the audience doesn't get. You know, many of our audience today, especially if we have to use Zoom, could be anywhere in the world. So if we're using, say, baseball references, how many countries in the world play baseball? There's three that I know of. Right. You know, the US, Canada, and Japan. But you know, we knock it out of the park. What does that mean if you're talking in, you know, Cuba or South Africa, whatever? Or even a group where maybe they're not sports, all that sports savvy. I mean, you would think the phrase knock it out of the park would be understood in America, right? But America. I was recently at a sporting event with some fellow parents and I overheard a dad say he did not understand the game. And I thought, well, okay. <laughs> I regularly speak in Canada. Now, in the U.S., we refer to our indigenous personnel, um, I, Native American or, or Indians. And, I, and I've spoken at on Indian reservations. And I've asked, how do you want me to refer to you? Do you like Native American or Indian? And they usually say, we're used to both. It's okay. But in Canada, they're known as, as First Nations. So even just across the border, or actually, if you're in Detroit, if you just go east, or Southeast, you go into another country. <laughs> Even there, we could use words that they would understand if we said Native Americans, of course, uh, but them, for them, their words are First Nations. So think of our audience. We're going to use, you know, the CPA terms. So I'm not a CPA, so I don't know, you know, 10-year regressive analysis or something. If everyone in the audience understands that, great, but if they don't, we have to talk to our audience in a language they understand, which means we're talking directly to them because you're the one who understands those words. There you go. And if you do not speak to them where they are, you lose them. And then that's a whole other can of worms. Yeah. So tell me. Hard to get them back once you lose them. It's super tough, sometimes completely impossible. Bob, what's your question for me? Uh, I would like to know what your opinion is on the um, nuclear deterrent in the far eastern regions of the uh, subcontinent of India. I cannot tell you my opinion on that, but I can tell you my opinion about how people should start their presentations in a way that creates positive impact for their audiences. <laughs> 
And there's a couple of lessons in this question, everybody. So first, let me answer or finish my answer. Oftentimes, people start presentations with bios and background information, and they have these big mm, introductions that are read by a facilitator or a moderator, and everybody's sitting in the audience doing exactly what Bob just did, yawning. Going forward, everybody, I want you to throw out those bios or... Maybe not throw them out, but revise them so when someone does read it, it gives the audience a reason to move to the edges of their seats. It gives them a reason to light up and say, I cannot wait for who is about to get on the microphone, but get away from those dry, boring bios. If you can all together, delete them and just dive into your content. Because remember what we said earlier, time is huge and how you spend people's time is even bigger. So that is how I'd like to answer that question. <laughs> let, let me roll with what you just said. I believe that if your bio is that valuable, print it out and put a copy in every seat, let people read it before your program starts. It is... Okay, let's figure out when does your presentation start? It is not when you open your mouth. It is when you're in the auditorium, when you're in the room, and it certainly starts as somebody is introducing you, which means write your own introduction. Don't let someone create it. They're probably not professionals. You write it, put the effort into it, and say, read this exactly as I wrote it. If it's supposed to be funny, underline it. If the words are hard to pronounce, put the phonetic spelling. And if you're really bold, rehearse it with them before they start. I like to tell people, look, if you really want to add something personal, how, you, how we met or why you hired me or something, then put that in beforehand and then go with my introduction because my introduction is a mini commercial for my talk. It sets me up for success. It gets people in the right frame of mind. Now, with my introduction, there's usually some humor in it because I try to be funny. I try to be humorous. I'm not really funny. I try to be humorous. There's a little sarcasm in mine because that's who I am. It also gives me a chance to read the audience before I even open my mouth. Because if they don't laugh to the lines that I think are funny, then I'm probably going to tone it down. If they're rolling their eyes and they're going, you know, poking each other and they're laughing about my funny lines, then I know this audience is ready for it. And I'm probably going to pump up the humor in order to, to really get people involved. As Bridget, as you said, getting people on the edge of their seats, I'm going to, I'm going to pull them to the front of their seats. So that the intro, it's, it's a couple of paragraphs for most of us, is, it serves a lot of, of different duties. It, it's a commercial to say, this is why you want to pay attention. Put your phone away. Turn your head this way. Listen, because there's something valuable coming. And it also helps me to gauge the audience of, should I open big? Should I open small? Should I pump up the humor? Should I tone it down? How can we have the, the biggest value for this particular audience? A couple of things you said that I absolutely love. Well, I love more than a couple of things, but I digress. Hey. Are you getting value? I, I am, Bob. Okay, well, that's I am. Measure. That's the measure. You said the bio needs to be a mini commercial. Everyone, I need that to sink in. I don't I'm, mean to interrupt, but the intro is a mini commercial. Correct. Your bio gives you credibility. Your intro is the mini commercial. Two correct. different documents. And, and, right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Your bio is far more comprehensive. 
I want you to make sure that when you are getting introduced, like Bob said, that you are looking at that as, as a marketing piece, as a marketing tool, as setting your audience up to get excited about you and setting you up to shine. The other thing that I wanted to touch on, you, you mentioned that the presentation starts before you even say a word, before you even open your mouth. I'm reminded of a professor who told us many years ago, oh, decades ago, as we were preparing as students to attend a conference, he told us the conference starts before we arrive. He said the conference starts when you get on the plane because it was a really large conference. If I'm not mistaken, it may have been an international conference. And he said, you never know, you may be sitting next to someone on the plane who's headed to that exact same event. That person may even be planning to attend your session, not knowing that, part, that, that he or she is sitting next to the speaker. So I've always kept that in the back of my mind. Like you said, it's not when you get on that microphone and start to speak that your presentation starts. It starts long before you open your mouth. Absolutely. That was, that, that was a fantastic question. Oh, and speaking of the fantastic question and how I handled it, everybody take note. I did not necessarily answer his question. And this is what I want you to do in your presentations. When you get a question to which either you don't know the answer or you just don't like the question because you know where it's going to lead, don't feel like you have to answer it. You can pivot and go in another direction. Or you do have that luxury of saying that's a fantastic question. Let's you and I chat afterwards or have that person reach out to you, provide your contact information. And if it is a question that they really want to explore, then they will contact you. But notice I indicate you give your contact information because now the onus is on that audience member to reach out to you as opposed to you trying to go and hunt him or her down. Uh, But don't feel like you have to answer every question that's thrown your way, especially, especially if it's not going to position you to be a rock star. I agree. If it's off topic, then we can say, you know, that we're not really talking about that today. Let's get together afterwards. Or if it's a really deep question, again, that's a really deep question. We don't have enough time left at the moment. Uh, See me afterwards. Or if I'm in a jovial mood, I'll say, you know what? My brother is probably better to answer that question than me. And they go, well, where's your brother? Well, you know, he didn't come to this conference, but if he were here, uh, I'm sure he could answer that question and then move on to the next thing. Love it. (laughs) Love it. Love it. Love it. Bob, what else do listeners need to know to make sure they always own the microphone? People think that we uh, practice to make perfect. I disagree. Practice only makes things permanent. So uh, it's really good to have outside feedback, coaching, to know that we're doing it the right way. And then if we steal from the military, uh, they don't say we, we don't practice till we get it right. We practice till we never get it wrong. So we practice, 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 especially that opening, whether it's 30 seconds or a five-minute story, whatever it is, you've got to know that absolutely cold so that if you have to go on early this happens at conferences all the time Bridget you've probably gone through this yourself that somebody got done early and they come to you go hey can you start now I know it's early okay let me let me get up there the other thing that's important is especially for speaking at conferences conferences have professional speakers and industry speakers industry speakers are not professional 
They tend to ramble on. They tend to go over their time slot. So now the meeting planner is coming to you going, hey, can you cut 15 minutes out of your 60-minute talk? And now you're going, how do I cut 25% out of my talk? Well, I know where I'm going because I have an outline of where we're going. I'll just leave off these two points and we'll still wrap it up nicely. So you've got to be able to uh, jump and go right now, which means you're ready to go those first 30 seconds, first five minutes, whatever it is. Uh, that'll get you through the nerves part. And then if you know your material cold, uh, uh, as you develop your talk, for example, uh, don't look at you're developing a 60 minute talk. You're developing uh, uh, 10 five minute modules. You're leaving 10 minutes to the end for Q&A or Q&O. And if you have to, you can drop a couple of the modules and your talk still flows together. So we have to be Bottom line here, you have to be real intentional about crafting a presentation. You don't just get up and wing it. Uh, I'm sure if you've been in an audience, you know when people are winging it because it feels like it, it sounds like it. As a professional, as an impactful speaker, we are crafting our presentation so we have maximum impact on the audience. And if our focus is all on the audience, not on us, then it doesn't matter if we're nervous because we're not thinking about us, we're thinking about them. Mm -hmm. Another part is, remember that the audience doesn't have a transcript of your talk in advance. Unlike the President of the United States always gives their talk to the, to the press and the press can read every word. I think that's dumb. If you forget a word, if you forget a paragraph, nobody knows but you. Just roll with it. It's more about impact. You don't have to be grammatically correct, though it is nice if you craft the stories. You don't have to remember every point as long as you can sum it up nicely. And it starts with knowing your material, practicing till you never get it wrong, and especially preparing the first 30 seconds. And the second most important part of your talk is the last 30 seconds. The call to action, whatever you want the audience to do. Remember, as you're walking down the road of life, X, Y, Z, you know, if you want more information, I'm going to be at the table uh, signing my autograph on the books. Um, you know, if you want the second module, not that it should be a sales pitch, but what are you going to do? I like asking people, okay, you just heard me talk for X, X number of minutes. What are you going to do with all this information? How are you going to apply it in your life? If you don't have it in front of you, pull out a piece of paper, write down the four biggest things, biggest aha moments that you got from today. Or if you need to, write down the biggest faux pas that I made, send it to me, and I'll send you a personal apology for it. Just, again, you know, try to get people to, to laugh about it. But I want people to take some positive action. I'm not there just to entertain. Hopefully, I'm entertaining some, some part of it, some portion of it. But I really want to deliver value that people will take action with. There'll be some change as a result. So I'm working towards that as my final goal. It's all crafted. Yes, yes, and yes. And obviously, I, you know, I don't really like this, so I'm not very enthusiastic about it. Not at all. I didn't sense that whatsoever. Really, I don't even know if we're going to bother to air this episode. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for wasting your time. <laughs> Bob Roy Blatt, thank you so much for being on the show today. You are very welcome. Thanks for having me. For sure. This was a blast. And to my listeners, thank you for tuning in. I always love when you decide to listen into an episode because that means you're learning, you're growing, you're interested. So until next time, make sure you always own the microphone. <laughs>